Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 21. This is the sixth and last speech in the second round of dialogue. Here, Job responds to Zophar. Zophar had been offended by something Job had said in his reply to Bildad. Job had said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Zophar missed entirely the point of that passage and focused instead upon the suggestion that he would face judgment from God, him, a wealthy, righteous, pious, wise man. He would face judgment from God. Nonsense. Zophar completely rejects the path that Job is pursuing and instead falls back upon the proverbial wisdom of Bildad. Zophar's only unique contribution is his suggestion that sometimes justice is slow in working out because God allows wicked schemes to ripen and eventually explode upon those who conceived them. Zophar admits the patience of God, but he still locates justice in this life, even if it comes at the end of this life. But eventually, people do reap what they sow. They might dodge the sword, but they will get shot in the back as they think to escape the field. That was Zophar's take, and this is Job's response here in chapter 21. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words, and let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. Job realizes now that his friends aren't really listening. They will not actually deal with the facts of his situation. They have their theology, they have their worldview, and they are not willing to consider any contrary evidence. Now, we should stop and notice that. Generally speaking, we read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God has saved us through the person and work of Christ. Well, here we're learning something about us. We are learning that human beings tend not to deal with contrary evidence. Scholars refer to this as confirmation bias. We will only accept and process information that confirms what we already believe to be true. When we're presented with evidence that seems to conflict with our presuppositions and convictions, we either dismiss that information or distort it so that it seems to conform with what we already believe. Welcome to the human race. This is why conversion is always a miracle from God. It takes a miracle. It takes a hammer blow from Almighty God to move people off of their default beliefs and convictions. Job's friends haven't yet received such a hammer blow, so they're not moving, not an inch. 
Nothing Job says, none of the evidence he provides will move them from their proverbial view of the world. So Job says, let me finish talking, and then you just go back to mocking me and assuming that you understand what's going on. Verse 4, as for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. Here Job is saying that it would have been helpful if they had just listened and empathized. Just sit with me with your hand over your mouth and feel the horror of my situation. By the way, that's what the Apostle Paul says we should do too. He says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Just enter in. If you don't know anything, don't say anything. Very often, that's the best comfort you can bring. In verse 6, Job begins to assemble a very impressive array of evidence that appears to completely contradict everything his friends have said thus far. And by the way, scholars remark upon the uniqueness of this particular speech. This is the most coldly rational of all Job's speeches. Most of the time, he appears like a man escaping from a fire. He is screaming and rolling around on the ground, and only about half of what he says can even be understood. But here, he's all business. This is the only speech where he spends the whole time actually talking to his friends. He never breaks into prayer. He never addresses God. This is all fact. This is all reason. This is all evidence. Most of his Speeches sound like lamentations. This one is definitely argumentation. Less prayer, more apologetics in this speech. He begins to make his case in verse 6. When I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. The fact is, Job says, that wicked people do reach old age. Zophar, you said that God's purposes are slow, but that eventually they ripen and explode and consume the one who conceived them. You said that. You said that a man might dodge the sword, but he would be shot by an arrow as he thought to escape the field. You said that. But these are the facts. I have seen many wicked old men. I have seen them dodge the sword and escape the arrow. I have seen them leaving money to their kids and their grandkids. I've seen them living rich and dying rich. They go down in peace to Sheol. Those are facts, my dear Zophar. And those facts don't seem to be accounted for in your neat understanding of the world. 
He goes on in verse 17. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let them pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care if their houses after them, when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Not only are there exceptions to your general rule, Zophar, Job says, I find it hard to discern your general rule at all. How many wicked people actually do die young? I'm trying to think of one. How many times does it actually happen that a man's wicked ways actually do land upon the head of his children? I'm struggling to think of an example of that right now. The fact is that your system doesn't work. It's not working. That isn't what's actually happening in the world. From where I sit, based on the facts I'm looking at, it almost looks like the wicked are doing well and the righteous are ending their lives in bitterness of soul. How does your worldview account for that? That's a hard speech. That's a a frank take on how things are playing out in the present dispensation. D.A. Carson says here, even allowing for Job's exaggerations, after all, some wicked people do suffer temporal judgments, his point should not be dismissed. If the tallies of blessing and punishment are calculated solely on the basis of what takes place in this life, this is a grossly unfair world. Closed quote. By the way, this is why I really don't think that there's much of a future for the prosperity gospel. Only in a time of utmost decadence and luxury combined with maximum biblical illiteracy could an idea so obviously antithetical to the plain teaching of Scripture be accepted and embraced within our churches. And frankly, I don't believe that either of those conditions is likely to last. The entire root system of the prosperity gospel is soon to collapse, in my estimation, so I'm not losing a great deal of sleep thinking about it at this time. Job himself is a convincing argument against the prosperity gospel, and Job has assembled a fairly devastating case against that kind of proverbial outlook on the world. Verse 27, Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, Where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? Do you not accept their testimony? That the evil man is spared in the day of calamity. That he is rescued in the day of wrath. Who declares his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave... Watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. 
All mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Job says the only way to sustain your worldview is by refusing to talk to actual people. The only way to sustain this kind of nonsense is to refuse to deal with the facts on the ground. The only way you can spread this kind of nonsense is to engage in falsehood and blatant dishonesty. You are deceived and deceiving, he says. Job has become absolutely convinced that God is working purposes that cannot be fully or even comprehensively understood if measured over the course of a single human life. Therefore, God must have dealings with us beyond the grave. Despite being ill-served by his friends, Job is zeroing in on a solution. He is looking beyond death. He is seeing beyond Sheol. He is trusting that God is good even when his experiences are bad. He is believing that God can be trusted even when present circumstances argue otherwise. And that, my friends, is real, authentic faith. Authentic faith doesn't ignore the evidence. Authentic faith wrestles with the reality of the world. Authentic faith doesn't close its eyes to suffering or delay or injustice. Real faith expects an answer to those problems. Real faith insists that God will make things right on this side or the other. Real faith holds to what is known about God, about who he is, about what he said and what he will do, even against evidence of what is currently happening before our eyes. That is faith. It was the faith of Abraham and Sarah as they looked upon their withered bodies. It was the faith of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. And it was the faith of our dear brother Job as he believed in God and trusted him still, despite his experience and against the collective certainty of the world. That is faith. That is courage, and that is grace. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.